Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Terry, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here, and I I really enjoy your program. Oh, thank you for saying that. Now, if you've heard it before, Terry, you know the way I like to start. I usually like to take, go right back and start that, start us early on the journey. Terry, tell me what got you interested in law. I know right now, of course, you're the Executive Vice President, GC, Corporate Secretary of Fannie Mae. But there was a Terry story before that. Take me right back and tell me what got you interested in the first place and maybe some of the early pivotal moments in your career. Sure. You know, I, I grew up, my folks immigrated from Greece uh, and growing up really didn't, I didn't have a lot of exposure to people in the law. So it wasn't on my radar as sort of a viable See, I knew I liked you already. There's some commonality. Parents coming in from Greece, no exposure to law. I knew we had a connection. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. so, but, you know, in, in college, I studied international affairs and got some exposure to law and really thought it aligned well with the way my mind worked. And I was you know, verbal, into verbal expression as well as yep. writing and, and really enjoyed that. So headed off to law school after college and really, you know, enjoyed that academically and like many newly minted attorneys in in the US I started out at a law firm in my case at O'Melveny and Myers in yep. Los Angeles and Newport Beach at doing transactional corporate work for a variety of clients fairly early on Jim I as much as I respected the great partners for whom I worked I yep. realized I didn't aspire to the sort of hyper specialization and kind of the hired gun approach right. that that was going to be the cadence and the dynamic of that role. But in contrast, I I did see a lot of general counsels and senior in-house leaders, and I really admired the breadth of knowledge that they had to have, the proximity to the business, their indispensability in terms of counseling the board and and senior management. So pretty early on, I I moved as a fourth year basically in-house because I didn't want to waste any time. I said, this is where I want to be as a as an attorney. Well, and the, the courage to do that reasonably early in your career to say this is, clear, this is clearly not necessarily what I want to do long-term, what was it? Did you just know instinctively? Was it any particular experiences or was it just the buzz that you got from seeing the kind of exposure the GCs had and the kind of influence at the board, the business. What, what, what was it specifically that made it clear to you? Uh, um, and maybe and made you the courage, I suppose, to, to, gave you the courage to make that early decision. Because yeah. it is pretty early, only a few. Yeah, years. no, you know, youthful impatience, and yeah, I uh, love that. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that yeah, I can't claim that I was super strategic. That once I had decided that's where I yeah. wanted to go, that I knew that this was the right inflection point. Uh, yeah. At that point. I started yeah. looking for GCs that I could hitch my wagon to and feel that I could right. learn a lot and a uh, company that I was doing transactions for, you know, needed, it was growing and needed some additional support. And I yeah. uh, tossed my hat in and, and got that. I mean, at the time I, had, I did have partners say, look, even if this is what you want to do, 
this is a little early. You could, you know, yeah. hold out a little longer and you could yeah. get a GC job out of the shoot. And I, at, the, at that point, I, I think I felt kind of committed to the next leg of my own journey. And, and, you know, and it's worked out, but I don't know that I would, I think it's very situational, Jim. You yeah. can't, you can't really say you can't. You can't. I do, I do like the expression they use, though, youthful impatience. I like that because you actually have to be impatient, I think, to succeed in anything, to really be successful and probably impatient a little earlier rather than later because you need time. You need time to succeed. So I actually like the way you've described that. I'm not sure I've heard that before, but youthful impatience, I like that. Thanks. Yeah, so I, you know, I, and really it, it validated my decision because I yeah. did learn. I was a sponge. I had the opportunity to do a lot of different things in house. And it really, a couple of years at that company really positioned me to be a credible candidate for earlier stage companies to be a, a GC. And, and I got a job as general counsel of a company that had just gone public that was in consumer financial services. That was really how I made my foray into the industry that's sort of been my home for the past 20 plus years. And then, you know, learned a lot there, made my way in time to be GC of a division at Morgan Stanley, the residential mortgage division, made it on to spun core logic off from its former parent and was part of, you know, building that company and ultimately found myself and no more, you know, still impatient, but no longer young. But uh, when, when a position opened up here at Fannie uh, Mae, but it's, been, it's been a great journey. Yeah, and you only actually had, looking at the, your, your, your resume now, you only actually had two years as a corporate counsel at, at Winds International before taking on the GC position at a listed entity. How did, how did you do that? What was it that made the CEO of the board of the listed entity say, yeah, two years, that, that, that's enough? will bring Terry on board as the uh, most senior legal officer. Yeah, well, it was a smaller, a much smaller company. So it was yep. a senior legal officer of a department of two. Uh, oh, okay. So, you yeah. Yep. So, it, you know, so it was, and that was a time, if you look, uh, you know, it was in the dot-com era. So it yes. was not as uncommon, yep. uh, Jim, for uh, for these companies that to go public fairly early. Yeah, the, you know, the, the markets were, were flush at that point, the equity yep. markets. And for people who were six, seven years out of law school to be tapped, you know, yeah. young management team to to serve in that role. So did I know a fraction of what I needed to know? In retrospect, probably not. But, I, yep. but, yep. but those those were the times. And at that point, yeah. I felt like, you know, I, and I, I, you know, I think I knew what I needed to know at that moment in time. Yeah. And that particular period, which is, you know, the dot com, which was unique for everyone, any particular learnings for you or insights or indelible impressions that have stayed with you to now? Because I'm going to ask the same question too in relation to the GFC period, but take me to the dot-com period. A anything that st stuck with you there or now out of that part of your career? You know, I think, again, in retrospect, a healthy respect for having, you know, adhering to good process. I mean, I, I think a lot of those companies, they had backdating scandals, they, yeah. or they had yeah. issues with, you know, kind of, uh, you know, just uh, the way that their, their equity was being issued and things like that. And I think, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, I did have some, some experience being in house about what, how things needed to look and, and how, how to approach yeah. it and, and, and was smart enough to be able to ask people that knew 
and did try. Not that I, you know, haven't a day hasn't gone by that I haven't felt I could have done something better, but I do feel like I, at times, even as a younger attorney, I I ensured we tried to stick to our knitting and 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 do things the right way. And then your, your time at New Century Financial Corp. I think there was there was nine years there. What part of your career then has left the greatest impression on you? What any again any particular experience? Well, yeah, two. I mean, one, it was a company that grew to be pretty, you know, a couple billion in market cap, seventy five hundred employees, and I started when it was a few hundred, and you know, making tens of millions yeah. of dollars. And, and what was and you, the size of your team by the time by you the left? time I left, and I'd picked up other functions to yeah. government affairs. I mean, I, I, I at that point I probably had close to a hundred people. Wow. Maybe over a hundred people, if yep. they include yep. the, you know, information security, some of the other yeah. yep. control-related functions. But the other thing that left an indelible remark is that that company failed. I mean, at the end yep. of the day, in the liquidity crisis, early days, the the first dominoes to fall were a lot of the non-bank, you know, non-deposit-funded mortgage companies, and and so I took that company through bankruptcy. You know, which yep. a humbling experience but yeah. also one where you you're, you're self-aware at that time that you got to hold it together and play a role and do the best that you can and, and and at times then when it's all said and done reflect on what you learned what you could have done differently but it was yep. that, that that you know you don't go through something like that without it essentially informing your approach for the rest of your career yeah it's funny we haven't had now something like that for a little while 10, 12 years, and we've had, we've certainly had a lot of growth. We've had a lot of career progression. We've had a lot of lawyers that have, you know, come through the ranks. It's, it's interesting. And, you know, we might continue having really great times and hot markets, but at some point, one does feel like that there might, there's going to be a turn. And at some point, we're all going to experience a downturn and we're all going to experience what more difficult times like and, and you know whether it's retrenchments whether it's companies going under so it, it's going to be interesting to see how certainly those that haven't had that experience how it gets handled how they handle it, the personal challenges all of that compared to those that might have been through it before it doesn't happen as often now but i do when 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 i do see somebody that i know even a little go through it, a company going through, you know, yep. a restatement or a very difficult period or whatever. I do try. I benefited from having people reach out to me and guide me, you know, in the abstract. Yep. We didn't know what was going on inside, but help yep. me recognize, you know, what I need to be thinking about. And I, I, I try to pay that forward a little bit because, again, it's, it's a challenging time and it can be a lonely time as yep. a general counsel. But it's also a time when we can do some of our best most meaningful work. And then when you joined Morgan Stanley, I think that was 2009, of course, so we're still pretty much deep in the GFC. Tell me about that, that part of your experience, any particular challenges, achievements, given that time frame and the, and the challenges we all had then? Yeah, so that that was actually was in two th late two thousand seven. So I was oh, there. seven. Okay. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So again, there, you know, Morgan Stanley had been looking to build its mortgage business and had acquired some of these distressed non-bank right. and had hired in a management team. And I had a, you know, even d despite the failure at New Century, you know, I'd had a, a good reputation and they hired me along with a few other 
execs to kind of build out their leadership team and really try to grow during that period of disruption. But within really a few months, the magnitude of the global financial crisis became more evident that this wasn't (laughs) going to be contained to one sector. And at that point, the strategy abruptly switched from build, acquire, integrate to retool, shut down, divest. And, you know, and so at that point, frankly, some of the lessons I'd learned in the tail end of the prior. I mean, Andy. Yeah, I was like, I I don't want this to become my specialty, please. (laughs) (laughs) But I I got pretty good at shutting things down. And but again, Uh, it was, you know, in 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 the foxhole with a team when you know you have clarity of purpose and mission. The other thing that really leaves a a mark from that period that was work we did that I thought was really important to retool these the mortgage servicing platform to be able to help homeowners in distress get their loans modification modified during that period. And I was involved with the work the Treasury Department was doing and and industry leaders were doing to try to create scalable, repeatable processes. So we even as we were divesting and figuring out long term strategically what was going to happen with these businesses in the near term, we had to have build the capacity to help massive amounts of homeowners who needed some sort of a relief during the crisis and needed to avail themselves of some of the programs that the government had helped create. Yeah, you touched a little bit there in relation to the, the the team, and so I'd like to do a bit of a deeper dive there. When you are in a challenging period, you know, whether it's a crisis or whatever it might be, the the way in which the team works comes together. The way in which you, as a leader of the team, you know, marshal those resources and galvanise the team. Talk a little bit about the kind of that part of your leadership style. What is it that you look for? What are the kind of strategies that you adopt? to make sure you know everyone's in the same boat, rowing in the same direction for that common you know, mission and purpose. Yeah. No, it's it's important and it taps into different different skills, but I yeah. mean clarity of purpose and going into a battle cadence, you know, yeah. daily huddles. I think just that, you know, consciously shifting your routine and regimen and cadence of communication, ditching the things that are no longer crucial importance and creating unified focus on on yep. what needs to be done it really you know it it works and it's important and it creates you know it creates a common purpose and really motivates people we went through that a little jim you know with covid at at yep. Fannie Mae you know where at least in this situation people at Fannie Mae weren't concerned about their jobs they you know yep. the, the company wasn't failing but there was a moment when we had this pandemic the government needed to provide tools and needed us to be the vehicle to provide those tools to the housing sector to allow people to get forbearances or other relief on their mortgages or also relief from the threat of eviction in their rental units. But we were we had to be the domain experts along with Freddie Mac to create those programs at a, in a way that could be scaled and deployed through thou, you know over a thousand mortgage companies that we work with, and that was again I tapped into some of the things I learned in the earlier crises. And frankly, Fannie Mae had a lot of seasoned, battle-hardened leaders in the in the business from the prior crisis 
who had learned from what hadn't worked, what had been overly complex, what had been over engineered. Yeah. And really, I, I was I think it was one of the institution's finest moment. And legal was really at the epicenter of it because it is ultimately all needs to be sort of documented, fit within an existing legal framework and be communicated in a way that the compliance and operators in the industry could adopt it, scale it and and let it go. And we, you know, we ended up helping over, you know, nearly a million and a half people enter into forbearance plans in a matter of just a few months, which was, I, I think, an epic achievement for the for the industry. Yeah. So and how did you just thinking about the way in which you'd let's say structure, instruct and drive your legal team, because that's a completely different problem than you had a month before or a priority you might have had a month before the pandemic. How did you actually almost like, I assume that you had to reorganize your team, if you like, to deal with what was now the most pressing issue to be able to deliver what you did deliver at scale in only a few months' time. How did you actually do it? Yeah, it, I mean, it tapped into the whole team. So we yeah. had, you know, people whose areas were not on fire, you know, were, were redeployed or people, yep. you know, that, that yeah, there, there were other things that weren't moving forward. So people that normally are overseeing kind of foreclosure processes or other things like that, you know, had time on their hands and had some relevant yep. expertise. So, again, yep. it, it really was about, both on the single family and multifamily side, working with the business, you know, to virtually whiteboard, because again, at this point in time, we'd all moved remote, what, you know, what the programs will be and construct, what are the elements that we need to put in place and what can we draw on? So we, what learnings can we draw on? Some of it was from the prior financial crisis. Some of these tools that we ended up scaling, we'd first experimented with in hurricanes in a much yeah. more concentrated geographic area where we needed in a particular city or metropolitan area or region a tool. We'd never scaled them, but they were on the shelf. You know, we had yeah. some artifacts that we could repurpose. And, you know, and we, we spent we just daily multiple calls a day with our regulator. We they directed us to work with Freddie so that there was uniformity. And it it really it's a blur because it was literally if I look back at my calendar then it was okay let's regroup in three hours and see where we are on it you guys can you guys turn that overnight where are we on this let's get feedback on that and uh, but it yeah. you know it came together it actually started from if I've got this right in your timeline you, you were less than twelve months at Fannie Mae when the pandemic started yeah. So tell me about the priorities or tell me how you actually, when you first started, what were the kind of steps you took to get your arms around what the role was and what the priorities were? And let's, let's think, talk about pre-COVID. Yeah. What were the steps you took and what did you identify at that time? And to the extent you can share with us, what did you identify at that time? Sure. What, yeah. What were the key priorities? Yeah, it was very, it feels like a lifetime ago, <laughs> but you know, I, I came in and did what many new leaders do. I did a listening tour, you know, and met the, you know, traveled around, met the legal team. I asked them what, you know, in addition to learning what each, what they were doing, I, what's working, what's not working, not, yep. what are your pain points? If there's, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you have? What would you you know, just to just to kind of create open-ended discussion. It was not as I'd been recruited that you know the leadership and the board had told me, look, we the the GCs moved on, but this is a good team. It's not broken. Yep. We're not asking you to just 
come in and turn everything up, up around. We're getting what we need from it, but we want you to continue to progress it. And and really at that point, the the mandate from the then leadership at at our conservator FHFA was to get the organization ready to exit conservatorship, to be yep. reprivatized. And I was seen as somebody who'd come in and had done the spin-offs and the public offerings. And so it was about, hey, great team. They're doing a great job. I knew some of the lawyers because I'd been on the other side with them. It, it is a fantastic pool of talent. But organizationally, after 10 years at that point being wards of the state, we'd lost some of the commercial muscle. Yep. And so it was really about how to optimize, you know, implement some legal operations disciplines, develop, you know, the bench strength of the talent, be a little bit more mindful of the spend and the productivity metrics. So it was to bring disciplines that I'd employed at, you know, at other places and layer it on without disrupting kind of the quality of the work and the the tremendous institutional knowledge. So it was not a bad hand to have to be dealt really, you know, great, great team of super smart people and really just kind of progress them as the other leaders of other functions in the organization were to a little bit more of a commercial mindset to be ready to recapitalize and, and be a public company outside of conservatorship. So, you know, that was the first year was really about that. And it was, you know, it was great. We made progress and, and, you know, was able to bring in some, some additional leaders into the team and, and retool legal operations a little bit. So it, it, it was great. And now we're sort of returning a little bit to that focus. Uh, but uh, I was, I, I was going to ask exactly that now that, uh, well, now that we're where we are with the pandemic and hopefully getting out the other end, do those same, do you think it's going to be those same broad priorities or is there a, a shift? What are you thinking about now as you think three, yeah. six, 12 months ahead? Yeah, I think there is a shift. Look, I, I think the other thing that happened was George Floyd's murder and yep. and the, the increased prominence of the, the, the social injustice that's, that's existing in this country. And at the same time, there was an administration change, a new now acting director of our agency. And so the focus is not in the near term on, you know, reprivatization it really is mission first, really yep. on using the tools we have in the housing market to promote affordable, equitable housing, home ownership, and, and tenancy for Americans, especially in areas that have been traditionally underserved. So, which again was something that resonated about Fannie Mae's chartered mission day one, but now it's, it's, we've sort of pivoted from to a mission first mindset. And so as we as we're coming out of the the pandemic and as we look at kind of our strategic roadmap and where legal will be adding value, it will really be in some of the innovations that will hopefully help um, narrow some of the gaps that have persisted for so long. And Terry, any particular innovation that the legal team owns to be able to drive towards and achieve that mission. What are you focused on when you think about legal innovation and it helping you deliver on the Fannie Mae mission? What what do you think of? Yeah, I mean, quite a few. In, in financial services, legal is so essential because we are involved in kind of manufacturing the product at, yeah. the, you know, at yeah. the end of the day. And so 
you know, an example recently that this has now, you know, been publicly announced that we were very much, very closely involved in, and I personally was involved in, was innovation. Fannie Mae announced that we're now able to, for first-time home buyers who have been renting but have thin credit files, and in the U.S., rental payments are not reflected in the consumer reporting system. So we sensed that there was a cohort of credit-worthy borrowers, but using the traditional credit scoring metrics, they weren't visible to us, and we couldn't we couldn't underwrite them, and the consumer reporting companies couldn't deliver that information to us. So we developed a process to, with permission from the consumer, the mortgage bank gets access to 12 months of bank records, and we're able, we built the algorithm to extract the rental payments, matched it up to what was disclosed on the application, right. and it built our own internal score so that folks who maybe have rarely used credit or they pay they may own a car but no, don't have a car loan so they have, they're virtually invisible in the credit reporting system we're able to now provide liquidity for mortgage companies to provide mortgages to them really without us having opened up the credit box or put yeah. the taxpayer at risk you know through imprudent lending but rather by through innovation. And that's really been, you know, it's a first step in a journey. I mean, I think long term, we all hope and expect that this data will ultimately get reported into the consumer reporting system and it will be ubiquitous. But in the short run, we were able to not wait on the rest of the world, but develop a process. And legal was involved in, you know, the privacy elements of it, the design of it, the interacting, you know, with stakeholders on yep. it, ensuring that it was copacetic under under the you know the panoply of consumer protection laws in the consumer financial services realm. So it, you know that was really fun to do and to see that get announced and and really was well received uh, you know by so many stakeholders. So Jim, that yeah, that's just one example of of many that legal professionals in the department get to be involved in at Fannie Mae as we lean into the mission element of our role. Yeah. And the reason I like that example, I've got to say, Terry, is sometimes it's actually hard for legal to say that they've had a truly innovative impact, if you like, that is an impact by delivering on innovation and being able to call out those examples as to what can happen, I just think makes a difference to The sense of purpose, particularly in an in-house team, I think the mission-critical stuff is a little bit more difficult when you're working in an external law firm. It's a different level of, different kind of mission-critical. But when the in-house team can actually deliver and make an impact on your ultimate customer and do it at scale, that's got to be pretty rewarding. Yeah, it it really is, and it's something we... We try to celebrate. I think you yeah, know you should. Many, many, you know, many of the folks in the department could probably make do better financially in a law firm or or maybe elsewhere. But the mission is really yep. what brings us together and 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 creates immense value to the what the work we do day to day. Yeah, Terry, talk to me about leadership and mentoring. Have you had any mentors yourself that have made an impact on your career? I'd love to hear about that and maybe any particular mentoring moments that have really stood out for you. Yeah, that first general counsel was a critical mentor, really. I still feel like I model 
try to model his his behavior and approach in a lot of what I do. And he externalized what he was doing. So it was great not just great to yeah. observe, but so when I go into the board with this, Terry, what I try to do, yeah. you know, and that, that throw value. It's great, value. It's, it's yeah. great Nate, when you can externalize, verbalize, explain the why. <laughs> yeah. It's super, super helpful. You know, he gave me feedback that was not always great, but was always constructive, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. all right, that you did well on that call. Now, yeah. Couple things to think about, yep. you know, and yep. uh, so I, you know, and I, I, I've, I've benefited from a lot of mentors, and again, to have tried to serve in that capacity yep. with folks um, who've come up through the ranks of my departments, and and, and many of them now, I, I think, in so many ways, have surpassed me, and a lot of them have become general counsels of of, of companies or divisions or moved into, you know, leadership. And how rewarding is that, though, when team members that you've worked with mentored and you see, you know, spread their wings, whether it's, you know, within your organisation or in other organisations? I think as a professional, there's very little there's more that's more rewarding than the kind of impact you can have on others and their careers. I agree. It it's uh, it really is rejuvenating and 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 really gives gives meaning to to be able to kind of help people progress. And uh, yeah, I think you know we work really hard, but I think it's it's those elements that really make it worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, and, and Terry, tell me as you look look ahead and think about what you'd like to achieve that you haven't yet in your professional career is there anything any kind of goals that you've set for yourself that you'd like to tick off as you get towards the end of your career i am really energized right now i mean i, I think my my goals now are how to continue to improve at, at you know at yep. what i do you know what i do there's not sort of a, a larger company that i you know that would be qualitatively different or something like that so to me, the thing that really gets me excited that I want to keep learning about and progressing on is I do think we're in the early innings of a huge transformation in the way law is done, both you know at firms yeah. but also in in-house departments. And when yeah. I think of how what tools were available to me in 1998 when I got my first GC job, it was very limited. It was internal versus external lawyers, you know. And now with with the progression of legal ops more digital transformation within legal, a panoply of both vendors, external vendors and internal skill sets can help refine, manage, optimize legal processes. You know, I really feel like when we, 10 years from now, if we look back at how we used to approach law 10 years ago, it would be, you know, embarrassing, embarrassing, (laughs) or it would be, it would be quaint, right? It would be, Wow, it's with you know a horse and a buggy whip. That's an adorable way to get around, you know. <laughs> so I think that's really exciting right. to lean into that and see what's what's happening. And so I do try. I mean, I'll even you know end up going to legal tech or clock or some of these things. Yep. You know, and, and really as a GC, I probably shouldn't be there. I'm, I'm not speaking or what whatever, but my God, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, it's I, I, I just can't get enough of it and hearing the case studies of what people are trying to do and how they're approaching things. And it's exciting to see the people earlier in their careers, both lawyers or other legal professionals. Now we have, you know, technologists, project yep. manager, process optimizers, 
e-discovery specialists, all of that to kind of just, just see you, you're on the cusp of, of a really exciting moment in this profession. I agree. I agree. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's a great time actually to be a part of that ecosystem and see if you can make an impact and influence because right now the direction is not set, not by any means. So there is enormous opportunity for every player to have a vision on what the direction might be and have an impact and influence that direction. And it just sounds like from the energy in your own voice, that's what's what it feels like to you. There's a whole lot of unknowns out there, you know, but you know it's going to be different and you know there's so much there's there's so much room for innovation and change that it's it's pretty exciting stuff. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And if I was going to say to you, okay, give me some predictions, Terry. What what is going to be radically different in five or ten years, and maybe a little bit on, and how do you think it's going to be different? I'd love to hear your thoughts on wow. that. Wow. <laughs> I think. I look at what happened in some other functions, you know, HR, finance, technology, as maybe shedding a little light on where legal will go. And, you know, it used to be in HR that you did your own payroll and you did your own this and you created, you negotiated your own benefits and you did everything and you had this huge group. And now it's moved to sort of a co-sourced model where you have, you know, strategic elements of the function there, but you use vendors to manage, you know, who have scale at doing things. Everybody, nobody does their own payroll anymore because yep. there are companies that have technology and scale that they can do it at a, you know, at a fraction of the cost with much better service levels. And I, I feel that there will be more and more elements of legal that are managed that way as a managed service and that law departments will have you know, still at the upper echelon, this the strategy, the strategic thinking, the counseling, the risk management, some degree of bespoke work that needs to remain, but will do more, call it managing external resources and then uh, managing a larger cadre of people who are involved in particular legal processes. Yeah. Again, they may be paraprofessionals, they may be technologists, they may be data analysts or, or whatever, but I sort of feel like that's what our department is certainly evolving in that direction. There are more non-attorneys than when I started. There are fewer attorneys than when I started, and I think that progression will continue to take place, you know, until a new equilibrium is reached. And I, I feel like that I look at the frame of reference of what happened in some of these other functions as being yeah. where the opportunity is illegal. I think you're actually on to something. I think that's right. Because if you actually think about how can it be the case, let's say every in-house legal department has to develop its own X to achieve a, a certain goal or an object, objective, that can't kind of be right. Because if everyone's doing the same thing as had to, whether they just built a manual process or whatever it might be, it can't be right. There must be a way. There must be uh, solutions that are applicable to across multiple departments that can be deployed at scale. And then the expertise that's developed in that particular solution, because you do have that, that solution has the exposure to tens, hundreds, thousands 
right. the examples. So I think you're right. I think uh, I think that, and you know how far it encroaches on the work you do on a day to day basis. That's the big unknown. Yeah, it's but, really hard to see. Yeah, you can see the first few. You know the first twenty meters of the tunnel, yeah. but you can't. Yeah. You, know, you can't see that. how far it, how far it goes. Yeah. Uh, All right, Terry. Just to wrap, wrap up with a few of my favorite questions. Anything that keeps you up at night now? It doesn't keep me up, but I I do spend a lot of time being concerned about what the hybrid work environment will be yeah. mean for, as a leader, as a manager, as someone that's trying to preserve a certain culture and esprit de corps. So I I do feel like. I, I'm really interested to see how that plays out, and it and, and it, but it does give me a little anxiety. And advice that you'd give Terry to your 25 year old self: never stop learning and be good to people. That catches up on you if you're not right. <laughs> I always say that that life ends up being just coming around sooner than you think. Right. <laughs> and my old analogy of saying footprints, you leave them. And footprints now are actually a lot different than they actually were. Sometimes the sand would blow them away in the past. Now they're not blown away. So I think it's actually much tougher right now. I think the world's a little bit less forgiving <laughs> than it was. But I think you're absolutely right, being you know, doing the right thing, because it's a, you want to have a long, successful, fulfilling life, personal career, and not taking that approach just minimizes the prospect of being able to to do that, to have a fulfilling life and a career. Right. Terry, it's been fantastic speaking to you. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for joining me. I think the audience is going to absolutely love this episode. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Bye-bye for now. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.